This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the John Oakley Show podcast for Monday, September 21st, 2020. What vicissitudes lie in wait for TikTok and other social media? And what exactly is the responsibility of the individual user? You've heard of the orgasm. Well, we're going to tell you about something known as the corgasm. We hear from listeners like you who share tales of trying to find their biological parents. And flying fish? Sure, if you dump them out of an airplane. All of this starts now. Defamatory postings on various platforms and uh, when these companies are saying that they're merely bulletin boards and they're not publishers per se, uh, the law may have something to say about that. Karen North may also have something to say about that. A professor of social media at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School of Communications and back this afternoon on The Oakley Show. Karen, good to have you back. Good afternoon. Always great to be with you guys. Karen, on that point, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious because uh, there was a report that came out earlier today from a group called Friends of Canadian Broadcasting, and they're talking about uh, defamation in or posted on these platforms. They call the report Platform for Harm, and uh, they're suggesting that the laws have to be strengthened to protect people from defamation and the like. Uh, but there's resistance from these platforms, Facebook, Twitter, uh, you know the drill. They're saying they're simple bulletin boards. How do you see it? How does the law see it uh, in your precinct, by the way? I mean, let me, my quick disclaimer, I'm not a lawyer, but um, of course I still have opinions about this. So, um, so you know, the interesting thing is that defamation, you know, it, just because the platforms are not held responsible doesn't mean that there isn't potentially actionable defamation. It just depends on who you're targeting with the responsibility but, you know, the, the issue that I always raise is, you know, we talk about, I don't want to get too, like, um, inside baseball, but there's something called CDA 230, and they call it the 20, if people want to Google it, it's the 26 words that created the Internet, okay? And the idea is that it's that no provider or user is responsible for the actions of any other provider or user, and it sort of gives cover to the platform. So if you or I post something, the platform isn't responsible we've agreed to use their platform as our broadcast system. And that is where they are different than, for example, your radio show where you're making editorial decisions. They're just providing a platform. And people will argue this and have argued this, but uh, I'll offer you the sort of um, doomsday scenario that if you take that away and if the platforms become responsible for whatever we post with the billions of things that are posted every day, then the Internet would cease to exist because there is no way to police that kind of activity, that much activity. And yet, if they stake out this position of neutrality, uh, that seems, you know, somewhat obviously uh, disingenuous because they've been editorializing with what they permitted or at least uh, they've not permitted to be posted. They do insert themselves into the equation of the free exchange of information, do they not? So the cover that they have is that, you know, we, we have a lot of debates here in the United States about 
um, you know, people keep talking about First Amendment rights, like freedom of speech. But I just want to remind people that you don't, you have freedom of speech in a town square or on the steps of the Capitol, but you don't have freedom of speech in my living room or in my private restaurant or club with, with its dress code or in your business. Okay, those are all sort of private rules that we establish or, or community standards, but mostly the private rules of my business or my house. And so this is sort of the same idea that when we sign on to a platform, we sign on to agree to their, the, the rules of their private club or their private business, and they can enforce their rules, and it has nothing to do with the First Amendment. It has to do with maintaining the standards that they've set and announced. The problem that I think that especially, you know, like Facebook and Twitter and the big ones get into is that especially recently with the incredibly polarized political situation in my country is that they'll go in and start enforcing standards against, for example, one elected official and not apply it to all people evenly. And then you start thinking, well, are they actually taking on the role of a publisher or editor? Are they editorializing by doing that? And then I think that they are putting themselves, even if I agree with them sometimes, they're putting themselves at risk by not being the neutral platform. And also concealing content that's been raised as a specter where they choose and uh, very, I guess, uh, premeditatively that they're going to allow for some and not for others. And your point is well taken. But I'm kind of curious if maybe the best balance to strike, as some lawyer was telling us earlier this uh, this afternoon, if you got a notification of defamation, uh, then it's their duty or responsibility to address that. Uh, can they? In other words, they can no longer claim neutrality on the point they've been served notice. So, you know, I've argued that point myself, and the, it's not even with that necessarily. If you take it to the point of forget defamation and go deeper and you talk about really abusive posts or illegal posts or um, things that are absolutely you know obscene or uncalled for, and um, and the question is if we report abuse, because there's a button that says report abuse, do they have a responsibility to act? And if they do have a responsibility, do they have a responsibility to act in a timely fashion? And we always believe that they do and that that's how it's set up. And yet, you know, ask your friends if anybody has ever experienced abuse on one of the big social media platforms. They can try and try and try again to get action and they are ignored. And so the question is, is there... Yeah, I, I think that the standards have to be changed or the, you know, the rules or the regulations have to be changed so that it's very clear what the platforms have to do. But I do not believe that they should ever be held responsible for user-generated content because it would be impossible. All right. Uh, but the law, or at least the people who make the laws, have a place, the government has a place to insert itself into uh, mandating these rules or regulations? Yes. And, you know, I mean, I'll give you an example of where, you know, it's always surprising to me that action hasn't been taken. But we talk about things like, um, you know, election manipulation or the, you know, the meddling. Right. And the question is, you on the radio or newspapers or television, old media, if there's an ad or a story, if it's promoted by somebody, it has to say this um, this campaign or this ad was paid for by and then they name the group. And then the candidate usually says, I support this or agree with this content. And that has not been forwarded to digital media. So the rules that are so stringent for truth and advertising, essentially, for old media, for traditional media, has not been extended. So even right there, there's no accountability for the social and digital media platforms 
that there always have for many, many years has been uh, accountability for you. And so you start looking at how far behind we are in the regulation of digital and social media, whether it's just truth in advertising or campaigning or defamation or whatever it is, there's a lot of work to be done to regulate. I would think so. Uh, Karen North is with us, professor of social media at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School of Communications. There is a message that Donald Trump approves, and that is the sale of TikTok uh, to Oracle Walmart. Uh, They've given an extra week period of grace in order to uh, because this was originally going to be set up Sunday that Alphabet that's Google and Apple would uh, no longer be allowed to offer TikTok in their app stores Uh, but the period of grace ensures that this is transactional and going through with Oracle I guess let me ask you because the the whole hullabaloo is that TikTok represented uh, from ByteDance the parent company based in China and uh, as a Chinese concern it was a real security threat Karen did you see it as such? You know, honestly, I hate to say it, but I did. I've been concerned about um, about ByteDance for a while, and I'm not alone in that. And um, not, and I just want to remind people that when you download an app from another country, from any other country, that generally speaking, that app is governed by the laws of that country, not our country or your country. And so if you download something from Europe, there are a lot of privacy protections. Though Europe, the EU, is the reason that we have all those things popping up saying, there are cookies, you know, click here to agree or to understand it. And by contrast, China has a much more lenient data collection and sharing policy. And in fact, you know, by their laws, there's a lot more data collection and sharing of individual private data with their government. It's just how their laws are set up. So a lot of us have been concerned, especially with TikTok, because TikTok is so popular with such a um, young and vulnerable population but also because there's so much in TikTok that is really built to collect data. So, and um, one other thing is that this deal, which started out as a U.S. acquisition of the company, I just want to point out that the combined shares of Oracle and Walmart will be 20%, and the other 80% will still be owned by ByteDance, which is a Beijing company. So I'm surprised that the Trump administration is okay with this. I think... As we said when I worked in D.C., the devil's in the details. Let's see how this deal actually plays out. Well, I was under the impression that the idea was uh, American users are based in America. Their data would be stored in Oracle's cloud. I hope so. I mean, they they say that, but then if you look at it, the they're saying stored in the cloud, but they're not handing over um, the algorithms. They're, they're a bunch of pieces of the puzzle of the ByteDance slash TikTok puzzle that will still be under the control of, um, of ByteDance. And the question is, if, you, if Oracle gets the cloud, but if the, I mean, they're still connected, you know, it's still a ByteDance company. So if they're not in control of all of the code, if they don't even have all of the code, then you have to wonder whether or not what's embedded. You just don't know what's embedded. I don't know. Like I said, you know, ideally Oracle is a big company and they know what they're doing on digital um, so I'm hoping that, the, like I said, the devil's in the details. If they work it out so it's really safe, then great. If they don't, a lot of people are concerned about data collection and sharing, um, you know, especially not just aggregated data, you know, where they collect on, like, um, types of users, but when it's individual users and the sharing of their data or this storing or archiving of individual data's, da- data, it's a frightening thing. Well, that's what they say. Uh, by the way, these... 
I'll say the same thing about, you know, your other story about people offering their DNA to private companies in an attempt to find out who their, um, you know, what their lineage is. And those are still, you're still talking now about people giving DNA to a private company, which is a little frightening as well. We had a lot of wild stories, too. The things that were revealed, uh, you know, for better, for worse, uh, some people felt it was a, a road worth taking, others not so much. But in this case, we'll see, I mean, uh, if TikTok uh, being, I guess, in the U.S. anyway, uh, under the control to a certain extent of Oracle, Walmart uh, makes a difference or ultimately, as you say, with the insidious tentacles of the communist Chinese government, perhaps a uh, Americans will be subject to foreign influence and data mining as well. We hope not, but as you point out, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that was beautifully said. That's why you have a radio show. That was beautifully said. It's the writers, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll leave it at that. Thanks for the compliment. Always a pleasure to talk to you as well, and uh, we'll look forward to doing more so down the road. Thanks for keeping the thought-provoking stuff in the public eye. I appreciate your being a party to it. Karen North, Professor of Social Media at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School of Communications. You can have a corgasm while working out. I was just reading about this, and uh, somebody who's coined the phrase and knows more about it than me, certainly, is Dr. Deborah Herbenick, the Associate Director of the Center for Sexual Health Promotion at Indiana University. Deborah just happens to be on the line on the Oakley Show at Global News Radio here in Toronto. Doctor, good to have you on board. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. All right, corgasms. Was that the phrase that you coined? Um, so that was um, actually coined by some editors at Men's Health Magazine in um, 2007. Um, but I've done uh, the, the only research on it to date and published a book on it. Well, all right. Uh, then you're the definitive authority as far as I'm concerned. What is a corgasm? So a corgasm is um, an actual orgasm that happens as a result of exercise, and it got its name because the editors at Men's Health had um, had published some exercises, as they do, and one of them was particularly demanding of the core abdominal muscles and seemed to result in orgasm for some of their readers who, who reached out to them to tell them. So the best we understand is that these corgasms, or as we also call them, exercise-induced orgasms, are much more likely to occur when doing exercises that fatigue the core abdominal muscles. Wow. All right. Because uh, this is really important. As a golfer, you know, uh, strengthening the core is necessary to do. But uh, never having experienced that, I'm just going to take it on your good authority that this is happening. To what extent? I mean, uh, people working out in gyms, I guess, were canvassed for this. Uh, was there a percentage that admitted that they had such men versus women? Sure. So we started out by doing a study that was a convenience sample on the Internet, really just trying to understand what people's experiences were. But my team specializes in nationally representative um, surveys here in the United States. And so several years ago, we did a nationally representative study and found that about um, almost 10 percent of American um, women and men reported having ever had at least one. But only a few percent had them regularly. So... Can you explain then what might lead to this? Uh, I mean, if this is the phenomenon that's happening, at least to a certain extent, uh, what would induce that? It's a great question. And so then that's what we're trying to understand with our research. What, what we know is that a lot of what people think is happening isn't what's happening. So um, sometimes, um, you know, self-designated sex experts will um, chime in on articles and say that, oh, it's not really coming from the core this is really just um, maybe the genitals being rubbed by an exercise 
um, or the G-spot somehow being stimulated, but that doesn't seem to be the case. We've done a little bit of research um, with some exercise scientists that have actually looked at sort of muscular activation in response to that, and that's more of the, the line that we're going. Um, but, you know, but I think what's interesting about it is that there are some commonalities. And so it's never, ever, from anyone we've heard from so far, which is, you know, many hundreds of people, um, no one talks about it happening after just one or two or five crunches. If it's from crunches, it's usually after like 50 or 100 or 200 crunches. If it's pull-ups, it's after, which are really hard to do for most people, it's after eight or nine or ten pull-ups. So it really is about having this, you know, very much taxing the core abdominal muscles um, to get this to to happen at all. Um, It's not generally happening through fantasy. It's very much a physical experience that comes from muscular activation. Right. In other words, I mean, uh, if you want a happy ending, you've got to be committed to the project in the gym, right? I mean, this isn't just going to happen through, as you say, uh, willfully trying to imagine it. And so the people that you studied, see, I'm just curious, curious about the age group, uh, because, you know, as people tend to work out in their 40s and 50s, what are the prospects of this being the outcome? You know, again, it's, it's happened to roughly about 10% of people, but what we don't know is if anybody can have this experience or not. Um, when we've done some in-depth interviews with people who have these experiences, um, some of them remember first experiencing this in childhood during rope climbing tests in PE class or during um, speed tests for sit-ups. Um, for many other people, it was in adolescence or early adulthood, especially if they were, um, you know, like very much into fitness. So some of our subject have been elite athletes or at least high school or college athletes. And some of them are in the military where, of course, you're doing very demanding exercise. But we also hear pretty regularly from people who have this happening, um, you know, during an exercise class at the gym pre-pandemic or, you know, or even exercising at home. So it, it really can happen during lots of different forms of exercise. But it does have to be, again, demanding of the core abdominal muscles um, to have this type of orgasm. Again, Dr. Debbie Herbenick is with us. The book, The Corgasm Workout, The Revolutionary Method for Better Sex Through Exercise. So if there's some some type of a formula that could be followed to uh, reach this level of, let's say, ecstasy uh, in the gym or otherwise, would you ever consider, I mean, is it a point where you could maybe uh, prescribe certain exercises that would lead to this? And I mean the depth to which you would have to do it. You've already alluded to, but are there certain exercises then specifically that could, in other words, it's almost a scientific method where people have experienced this. Can they do it, replicate that experience over and over again? Exactly. And and those are some of our questions. So what the Corgasm Workout does is present a lot of the findings from that research. We had surveyed and interviewed, you know, so many people. And what we did was we, we started to see these very clear patterns and how it was happening. Rather than prescribe a specific exercise, though, what we did in our research is we um, we recruited people who already did some degree of exercise. It didn't really matter to us what type of exercise they did, but if they did strength exercises, we gave them some suggestions. If they did, um, you know, core abdominal muscles like crunches or leg lifts, we gave them um, suggestions for there. And if they did a lot of cardio, we gave them suggestions. So as some examples, um, if somebody was... Um, a regular cardio exercising uh, exerciser, we would say, okay, after you do your, your usual running of 20 to 30 minutes, um, go immediately to the exercise mat, 
and start doing your, your core workout, your crunches or your leg lifts or your, your planks and so on. Um, because there seems to be something that is a common thread that follows a lot of sex research is that activating the sympathetic nervous system, which you can do through 20 or more minutes of, um, of cardiovascular exercise, can induce arousal. So if you can go from this already aroused, like physically aroused state, um, to these core, these very difficult core exercises, people have a better chance of being aroused. And for those, you know, for, for probably a smaller percentage of people, have the corgasm. In our exercise, we, in our research, we were less interested in seeing if we could make people have a corgasm. And we were more interested in saying, can we take what we've learned about corgasm and help people sort of learn the wisdom from their own body to enhance arousal? And for three quarters of our participants, we were able to do that. So they were able to um, learn to sort of move their body, um, whether through cardio or strength or, um, you know, fatiguing their muscles through core exercise routines to actually increase their arousal. And what we wanted to do was essentially give people these, you know, natural, safe, effective ways that they could enhance arousal without taking uh, you know, medications or doing anything that, that wouldn't be healthy for their body. So we're looking for healthy mechanisms of arousal enhancement. Well, how long does the sensation last then? Say you, you shower, you come out of the gym. I mean, are you still feeling that heightened sense of arousal or is it only temporary when you're doing the core crunches and things? You know, it's like other types of sexual arousal or orgasm where for some people it might be you know, 30 seconds, and for some people it might be three minutes or, or, or glow that lasts an hour. Um, but it's not like this is, you know, something in a bottle that's going to last all day, right? This is uh, typical experiences of arousal and orgasm. It's fascinating. I mean, uh, to think I'm wasting all my time with the bicep curls. That does nothing for me. But, uh, <laughs> Engage so, your core while you're doing it. <laughs> well, you're, you're, right, you're right. You know, and I do see uh, some women, I don't know what the name, the Kegel exercises or whatever with their legs and mm -hmm. uh, all the rest of that. And, I, you know, that's I never see guys on that. But nonetheless, uh, I guess that's one of those areas that uh, does lend itself to the potential for a corgasm, isn't it? You know, many exercises, as long as they involve core engagement, can. But again, it, it's going to take fatiguing the muscles to do that. Wow, what a fascinating account. Uh, more research forthcoming, I'm sure, but uh, the word is out. The word is Corgasm, by the way, and uh, it's the book. Just want to get the title here, The Corgasm Workout, The Revolutionary Method for Better Sex Through Exercise. Dr. Debbie Herbenick in Indiana. Thanks so much for your uh, time and your enlightenment this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. I was reading about a Toronto woman discovered she has up to 600 half siblings. DNA tracing now opens things up and some people don't want to know. Others are very curious and for health reasons as well. And then those who might have given away at adoption uh, don't want to be found out. But there's a movement afoot to uh, make it greater access for those who might be searching. Let's get Ann in here in Toronto. I'm going to try to take as many as uh, calls as I can. We we're flooded with uh, great stories here this afternoon. Good afternoon, Ann. Hi, John. How are you? Very good. Thank you. So my story is a, a happy one. I was adopted at birth and never really looked for my biological parents because I had a good life. But my daughter and I decided to do the ancestry DNA just to see what our nationality was, just out of curiosity. And through that whole process, um, it comes up with all these biological matches that I, I didn't know. Um, how it worked, actually. I guess I was a little naive about it. And there at the very top was my biological father. 
So as you can imagine, I was thrown for a loop and thought, you know, do I contact him? Because I had left the profile open. So because he was also there, he could see me. Hmm. But because I didn't know the circumstances of my birth, I didn't want to, you know, hey, surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I didn't know. But um, through a couple other relatives, I actually gotten in contact with him and my mom and find out that found out they married after I was given up for adoption. They looked for me and had three more kids. So I had like three full brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews. It was awesome. Wow. And so everybody was happy about the arrangement and the revelation. Everybody, like, it was so cool. Like, I was a little nervous at first, as you can well imagine. And they're, like, my, my, my parents are wonderful. Let me just put that out there first. But my biofam is also incredibly cool. And it was the weirdest thing about it was to meet people that looked like me, because I'd never had that before. Hmm. Wow. That what was a great cool story. Yeah, yeah. And so you have, like, extended family gatherings now? Well, not because of COVID. That's kind of screwed things up. But after that, I assume that, yeah, I'll see them more. And yeah, it's pretty amazing, actually. Great story. Thanks for sharing it, Ann. You're welcome. Have a good day. And you, all the best going forward. Let's get to Brian in Grimsby. Brian, I appreciate you joining us here this afternoon. Uh, How about your story? Hey, Johnny. Great day for uh, child abandonment radio. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. No, no. You know what? Again, allow me to... Like the last lady said, that was her story was fantastic. She had no bitterness about that. I don't either. Uh, born in '65, I ended up my dad, my uh, adoptive father died 20 years ago, and I had two young kids. And I thought, you know what? I don't know any medical things, so I went with the adoptive uh, disclosure services unit uh, through the Ontario government. Mm-hmm. Ended up finding that they had just died like a year and a half before me. Uh, I'd found them. Um, found out I was the middle of six, at least. So they had three before me. I was given up for adoption, and then they had three more. But it was this fractured North End Hamilton family where there was boyfriends and abuse, and I'm probably the product of a rape, uh, according to family history. And it's just, you know, my family, like the previous lady said, I, I was raised in an amazing white picket fence family where my parents stayed together till my dad died, my aunts and uncles. I don't regret it. Uh, I, I like her. I'm a bit of a closet armchair historian. I wanted to find people who look like me. I wanted to find my, uh, my, my uh, background. Did. Haven't stayed close to them. Uh, I have my own life, my own friends, my faith, my everything else. Uh, but it was it was interesting, and I think a lot more of us are products of that kind of a fractured upbringing than than we all think. And so, what you're saying indirectly is some things are just better left alone, and uh, you don't want to go through the rigmarole pursuing it and uh, getting intimate or anything like that. It's just cut no, the cord, bygones, bygones. I thought about the history and the science and the geography of it at all. Met them. Uh, kindred spirits for you know six months or a year they met our kids some of their kids looked like my kids it was great and then i just started backing it off and they they were a a, a family that had a different faith structure and everything else i i wanted to find them and then i wanted to back off and i'm i see them maybe once a year and just say hi uh been to a couple funerals here and there but I, i have enough structure in my life and family and faith and you know, uh, infrastructure that I don't need them. It sounds crass to say, 
Mm-hmm. Some of them kind of glommed on and, and thought that, hey, this, and it, it got even weirder. There was like two more kids we found that might have been uh, products of, of this 1960s, 1970s interaction. Like it was just too fractious for me. Like I was just right. used to all my aunts and uncles living and marrying together, no divorce. You know what I mean? Like I had this white picket fence life yeah. and they just lived this life where they, they were just, everything was in, in chaos. And well, I just, yeah, I you know, it kind of, myself into that. I got it. It kind of speaks to the nature nurture argument and they went a different path as did you. And, uh, now the twain are not necessarily meeting Brian. I appreciate you sharing that story. Always good to hear from you. I'm going to take Danny out in the woods here under the wire, a uh, real short time frame. Danny, what's your story? Uh, yeah, John, well, I have quite a few years ago, I got a call from a guy and he, he said, by the way, uh, my name's so-and-so, and do you know a girl named Kathy, so-and-so? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, I think you're my father. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of shocked, you know, <laughs> surprised. And uh, I said, oh, yeah. He says, well, I'd like to meet with you. I says, well, you know, we can meet. That's fine. Uh, and uh, I know we, we, we had a baby when I was 15 and she was 14 or something mm-hmm. and put up for adoption. And uh, I said, fine, we can meet. Uh, by the way, I don't have any money. Eh? And, <laughs> and he said, oh, no, no, that's fine. And and we met and uh, shot the breeze for a half an hour and this and that. And he was a great big daddy guy. He was about six foot six, right? Wow. I'm about five nine, and, my, and Kathy's not very tall. And I was, uh, whoa, whoa, this guy's a big uh, guy. got good genes, I guess, right? The stock markets are plunging. Well, yeah, they are today. Uh, Both the Dow and the TSX down significantly. Dow's down by about 600 points. Anyway, you know what else is plunging? The fish in Colorado. Uh, And uh, I was just kind of curious about that. Plunging, what does that mean? And uh, we'll ask Brian Johnson. Brian Johnson is with uh, the Mount Chavano, let me get this straight, uh, hatchery manager. He's with the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Service. Brian, good to have you on board. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, John. So, uh, you know, I was reading this story about uh, the young fish, the fry, I guess, that you're stocking the lakes with in Colorado. Uh, It's a fascinating account. So uh, how exactly do you stock these lakes? Well, we stock these lakes, um, a lot of our lakes, uh, via airplane. Um, when these fish are about an inch long, we send them up in these uh, Cessnas, and each of these uh, each of these planes are equipped with a tank, and we can fit up to uh, nine loads in there. So each pilot can do up to nine lakes at a on a trip. So you're just buzzing the lake, and you unload the hatches, and the hatchlings go out. That is correct. Yeah, they get uh, these pilots are trained and they get in there 70 to 100 feet above the lake and they open the hatch and drop the fish right into the center of the lake. You know, I was thinking about this because uh, it's coming up to our Thanksgiving anyway. Uh, This almost seems to me in my mind's eye like uh, Les Nesman's infamous turkey drop. I don't know if you remember that from back in the day, (laughs) but (laughs) the tagline was, I thought turkeys could fly. Uh, He's dropping them out of a plane uh, to people on the ground, (laughs) and it was just a debacle. Uh, How do these fish, I mean, how do they survive the plunge? Um, They do really well. I mean, a lot of these lakes uh, wouldn't even have fish if it wasn't for... Uh, this type of stocking a lot of them naturally didn't have fish and then um so they just put these fish in there for mostly for the anglers to catch once they grow up to 
be about 10 inches. And you know, this, as long as the fish are the right size, they're not too big and they're not too small, um, they do really well. And probably, you know, 70, 80% of them survive the fall. So how big are they when they make the plunge? Uh, they're about like an inch to an inch and a half long. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, and so when they're coming down from 70 to 100 feet, uh, I guess there's a bit of resistance there. So do they float down? I mean, if they're not that heavy and they're only an inch, inch and a quarter, uh, how do they? How rapidly do they descend and is it head first? Yeah, it seems to, you know, that uh, if you've seen that video, it seems like they all kind of come out and go down head first and they, you know, they drop pretty, pretty slowly down, down to the lake. And you can right. see that, that video, a couple, you know, a couple of those, uh, couple of those shots. You can see them actually hitting the water in the background. <laughs> right. And so, is the survival rate upon entry about seventy percent? Um, it, it's probably even higher than that. I mean, I think you know that you know the biologist decides how many fish that lake should get based on their sampling efforts, and you know, and they they just do this every two years, and so these lakes all have fish in them, and they. You know, it's all based on the numbers they put in there. In total, about how many would you drop into the lakes in Colorado, or I guess it's just a certain area there you're talking about, right? Well, so we do, what we do in Colorado is we do half the state every every other year. So this uh-huh. year was the north half of the state. Next year's the south half. And this year alone, we did about 330 lakes by airplane. And so that, mm. that equates to somewhere in the neighborhood of, 350, 380,000 fish are stocked wow. of all the high mountain lakes. What species? That's a lot of fish. Oh, for sure. Um, these are all just uh, just native cutthroats. So we st- oh. we're stocking out these native cutthroats um, for basically for recreation. Once they grow to that, you know, catchable size of eight to ten inches, uh, the anglers can go out and catch them. How long does that take them to grow that size? You know, it probably depends a lot on the how fertile the lake is but i'd say you know a couple years or so two three years before they're catchable size and so uh introducing the fish this way i mean for anglers uh that doesn't disrupt any of the natural ecology or anything like that does it no and and a lot of these lakes based on what the biologist finds out by going up and sampling them you know he'll cut the numbers back if he's getting a lot of natural reproduction in there and then they'll increase the numbers of fish stocked if they're um, finding that there's not very many fish in the lake. Right. And I guess because the fry go in, uh, some of them are not going to make it because they're basically just uh, food for bigger fish. Wouldn't that be the case? I mean, I'm guessing. Yeah, I'm sure some of them do do get consumed by bigger fish. It's just the natural food chain. I see. And so what is the state of the lakes in uh, Colorado? I mean, here in Ontario, we get up north. Uh, it used to be a problem with acid rain, uh, truth be told. Uh but you can can you eat the fish that you're picking out of the lakes in Colorado? Yeah, you can. You know, most of our lakes, especially our high mountain lakes, are as as clean as they can get. And uh, yeah, you can definitely eat the fish out of there. The things we worry about are mainly like drought or uh, winter kill in those lakes. Right. Well, you got. I'm guessing ice fishing in the winter as well. That's always a a big sport here in these parts. You know, you get the anglers out there several miles into a lake, actually, with the uh, ones higher up north, and the fish are just ready to bite. Well, that's an interesting one. Okay, you're stocking the lakes from the air and uh, dropping in about 380,000, you were saying, in total, these uh, fry? Yep, 380,000 a year. Raised in a hatchery that you're in charge of? 
Yep, that's correct. We get these eggs in um, from a wild spawn on this, uh, from a lake that's up on Pikes Peak, and they bring those eggs down to the hatchery, and we grow them. We got those about uh, the beginning of July, and they're on an airplane by the middle of September. What other risks are there? I'm just curious. I mean, is there sometimes disease that can run rampant through a stock or, or any other problems like that that might mean, you know, uh, a low batch uh, of hatchlings or anything like that? Problems with that at all? Um, we haven't seen any problems with that in our, our fish. And these these cutthroats are raised in uh, what we call our isolation facility. So mm-hmm. it's got this really clean spring water source and before these fish can even be stocked out, they're ran through like a battery of disease tests and uh, made sure they're they're free of diseases before they go into the headwaters of all these streams. Which is important to do. Obviously, you don't want to introduce uh, something to contaminate. Brian, I appreciate that. Just uh, it was a fascinating story. I always like to hear about these kinds of things from uh, outside of major urban centers where people are uh, living the pristine existence. Thanks so much for your time this afternoon. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you, John. You got it. Brian Johnson again. He's with Mount uh, Shavano, the hatchery manager with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. This has been the Oakley Show podcast for Monday, September 21st, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.